Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Oh my God, this book was great. So I'm, I'm going to just start it off saying that. So uh, are we ready to go? So I've got Adam Grant once again on the podcast. Adam, how's it going? I'm thrilled to be back. Thanks, James. I mean, we had you on, I guess it was about a year ago when Give and Take came out, which was such a great book about, you know, are you a giver or a taker or that thing in the middle? I forgot what the- The matcher. The matcher, yes. And then, and I wrote an article about it. It was a great podcast, so informative. But this book that you just wrote, Originals, blew me away. Not only did it blow me away, it's about- I want to. It's hard to say in one sentence. It's basically about creativity, but not only how to be creative, but how to evaluate a creative idea, how to build an environment where creative ideas um, can grow, whether it's in the workplace or in the home. I mean, just you, you cover creativity from every angle. You give so many examples, and I kind of want to talk to you about all of them. But first, I want to admit to you and apologize in advance. I'm going to liberally steal from this book and not give you credit. So just so you know. <laughs> Like, way in advance. I don't know how you feel about it, but... You know, you won't be alone. Like, I love this idea of kleptomnesia, right? Where you accidentally steal other people's ideas because you just absorb them. And I fully expect you to do that, too. Uh, um, Well, it might be more conscious, though, because when you wrote about kleptomnesia in this book, it reminded me, actually, and we just spoke about this, about Robin Williams, um, the comedian and the actor and and so on, because when he was a stand-up comedian, a lot of other comedians always thought he was stealing their jokes. But you could see from his style, he would just pick it up from the atmosphere and then kind of spread it out in his own way. And I think think of that happens to a lot of like basically creative Steve Jobs is known for that as well. Like he would, you know, take ideas from everything and then put it into the iPhone or whatever. Yeah, it's funny because when you think about how our memories work, um, it's it's a, it's basically called a source monitoring failure. And the idea is like, okay, once I'm accepting an idea that I hear is true, I don't really care who said it anymore, right? I just need to remember the information. And so you don't really store, like, wow, I got to give credit to this person. You know, it's interesting because I saw on Twitter recently, somebody was, uh, a bunch of people were quoting me on an article I wrote, and I realized I, I, it was a great quote, and I did write it in the article because I, I clicked and I did write in the article. And then I was reading a book recently by Derek Sivers, uh, and I realized he said, the quote, and I didn't, I hadn't remembered that. So that that was a real example of kleptonesia where I totally did not remember, and it was a great quote. Unless he in turn took it from you without realizing it. Sometimes it's hard to trace the origin of these things. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. But um, so so I have a, a bunch of things I want to go over from the book, and then I also kind of and I I bookmarked half the book, so I'm gonna have to kind of find my my bookmarks here, but. Um, there were so many things that you talked about, and, and I wanted to first explore what got you writing this book, because it's, you had a sort of interesting story that, I know, I know in general you're probably interested in creativity, like you're, uh, just by background, you're the youngest prof- tenured professor at Wharton, right, in the business school, you're, you, you wrote Give and Take, huge bestseller, but so in general you've been interested in creativity and, and innovation and invention and so on, but what got you to write this book? 
Well, I think what happened was I kept having students ask for advice about how to champion new ideas. And they're prob- how to champion as opposed to come up with. Exactly. They had ideas. And the question was, how do I know if I have a good one? And if I'm in an organization, how do I speak up without you know cutting my boss's throat? If I'm an entrepreneur, how do I find funding? And then I was working with a lot of leaders who were curious about how they could fight groupthink and you know build an environment where people think creatively and are willing to innovate. And I realized those are two the two sides of the same coin. And we just have a ton of guidance on how to generate ideas and so little about after you have an idea, what do you do? So this book is like the sequel to creativity. Well, let's. I'm curious about the championing of ideas because you get you gave a great initial example with uh, Rufus uh, Grissom. I don't is that how you say his last name? Grissom. Grissom. Yeah. Grissom. Uh, I remember him from as when he started Nerve.com, like way back in the '90s. But then I I didn't even know about his more recent venture, which was Babel, a, a site about parenting. And you said how he kind of when he went in for investing and when he went to sell the company, he would basically start off just listing the objections, like why you shouldn't buy Babel or why you shouldn't invest in this company. And of course, it's a little gimmicky because it's funny initially. And um, where's the line where that, like sometimes it's great to list objections, like that standard copywriting technique, address the objections when you're doing marketing. Um, But at when does it become too gimmicky? Did he risk that in this case? I, I think the way that he navigated it was really clever. So he would go in, he'd start to pitch his company. It's not the first thing he does. So he begins by telling you the reasons you know, that this is an idea worth considering. So he has the story. Yeah, he tells the story. He talks about, you know, in this case, it's Babel. So, you know, look, I'm a, he says, I'm a new parent. I've been getting all this terrible advice. And I want to like I want to tell people what it's really like and, you know, give give honest information about you know, how to raise kids. And then he says, you know, no idea is perfect. And let me tell you three reasons why you sh- shouldn't invest in this company. So that's the laugh part. You're going to laugh. But, I, but, but he does it, in, I guess, in such an honest and sincere way. They're, they figure, okay, now it's going to be harder to come up with our own objections. He's just giving us all the objections. Yeah, I mean, so you he, learn to trust him. Exactly. He, he shows that he's self-critical, right? And he's, he's not just falling in love with his idea. He, he does make it harder for investors to, to come up with their own concerns because, you know, normally you've been through this before, right? Investors are sitting there thinking, all right, here are the five things that I'm thinking of to nail you and I'm going to show how smart I am. And now they're like, man, he covered three of my four big issues. So instead, the way I'm going to show him how smart I am is I'm going to solve his problems. And so they actually get into these joint problem-solving you know, sessions where they say, you know, that concern you raise, I don't think it's a big deal. Here's why. And by the end... Like, they want to partner with him. You know, it's interesting because I've had to pitch some ideas recently, and since I've read your book even, I was thinking, how would I use that in the pitches? It's it's not that easy because if you say, here's why you shouldn't like me, you know, pe- people could be really off put by it. Like, it's hard to sort of immediate. I, I like that he sort of told his story first, which I was, wasn't clear about in the in the book. So he raised the objections after he told a story and his reasoning. Um, but OK, th- thinking about this book. So here's a book about creativity. Why shouldn't I read it? <laughs> you know, it's funny. We, we had a whole discussion about should this be a marketing campaign for originals? And we decided no, because, it, you know, the, the book is not designed to be gimmicky. Right. It's, it's about a set of core values that are really important to me about how to bring new ideas into the world. And you know, I don't, I don't want to use like marketing tricks to get people to read it. I want them to read it if they care about that topic. Right. But, you know, look, I think there are reasons that you shouldn't read it. Um, number one, you know, it's 80,000 words. And, you know, when you give someone a book, it's like, here, here's a lot of work to do. Uh, secondly, I think that... Um, well, then they can listen to this podcast instead. Well, there you go. And then <laughs> this is like the cliff notes. Right. I think the second thing is, I would say, you know, one, one thing that was dissatisfying to me about writing it is... With the last book, I had a, a framework that sort of organized the world, right? And it was like, there are these three approaches to interactions. Let's figure out who you are, who are the people you deal with, and how we can use that knowledge to understand success. And so everything was sort of organized around this this one perspective. And this time, instead of having a thesis, I had a question. And the question took me in a lot of different directions. So, you know, the different chapters take different topics on, but there's not some grand theory of how to be original, right? It's a, it's a series of insights. And, and some are contradictory. Sometimes. Yeah. So, like, you know, it turns out that originals, um, they have more ideas than the rest of us, not necessarily better ideas, but they're also big procrastinators. It's like, well, do you put things off or are you really productive? And how do they balance the two? And, you know, it's, it's not a neat and tidy view of the world, but I think originality is messy. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, well, you start off with a story about your 
and this is where almost like you raise an objection. You start off basically criticizing your own creativity, which is ridiculous. We know you're extremely creative. Well, you, hold on though. My ability to recognize originality in others clearly uh, had left <laughs> left something to be desired. I don't know because you gave you know uh, investors are wrong as you know eighty five percent of the time. Like the average VC fund, even the best investors out there are wrong eighty five percent of the time. So so you thank you for making me feel good about myself. <laughs> well, you you had um, I guess some students or uh, you know the Warby Parker guys is now a billion dollar you know eyeglass company and you chose not to invest in their absolute seed round. You would have you wouldn't be doing this podcast with me now. You'd be you know have 60 million dollars or whatever and be hanging out somewhere so if you had invested so why didn't you invest and what what conclusion did you make about yourself about creativity from that or about evaluating creativity yeah this was really early stage so neil blumenthal one of the the co-founder and co-ceo he was in the first class i taught at wharton and he came to me and he said you know we're thinking about selling glasses online do you you know do you want to join as like an early kind of angel investor advisor person and I generally don't give money to students, but probably a smart idea. Yeah, but I wanted to learn a little bit more about it. And you know, when I went down the list, it was like, okay, they haven't dropped out of school. All four co-founders have lined up backup jobs just in case this doesn't work out, so they don't seem that serious. And then the day before the launch, they still don't have a functioning website. The whole That's... business is a website. That's literally all it was at the time, and it didn't exist. Did they were they worried then? Uh, I don't even know. If they seem like pretty calm guys in your book. Yeah, I mean, they just they were doing it their way, and they're like, okay, we'll figure this out. In fact, they seem so calm, and and I thought this was a really important point because I see this all the time. Everybody says to me. Um, oh, I have an idea. Where do I get venture capital money so I can now quit my job? And that, for me personally, that has never worked. Like, the best businesses I've ever done was when I kept my day job. And, I mean, my first business, I stayed at my day job for 18 months before I left for full time. So, and you mentioned that risk mitigation is this key factor of these originals. Being conservative yeah. as opposed to being, like, this wild and crazy person um, is actually the best, you know, uh, one of the best ways to be original and and have your ideas work in the end. I, I was stunned actually. There's this nationally representative study of American entrepreneurs showing that you know the ones who quit their day jobs and go all in. If you compare them to the people who did what you did, James, and you know kind of kept on to the day job and said, "I'm just going to start this business as a hobby," that second group that's risk averse, 33 percent less likely to fail. Yeah, amazing. Why? So wh- what is it about keeping your day job that worked for you? I was not worried. I mean, I had a day job. I had my my salary was being taken care of. If I lost one client, it it wasn't the end of my life. Which once I did leave, and the very first after I left, the very first day on the job, I did lose a big client, and it scared the hell out of me. But okay, by then I had spent eighteen months building up a roster of clients, so it wasn't that bad. But early on, if that had happened, it would have been devast. It would have been the end of the business. That's very similar to what I what I saw with the Warby Parker founders, which was you know they they bought themselves the freedom to build the brand right. And during all that time that you know they could have been all in on the business, they were trying to figure out what to name the business, knowing they needed a brand with you know sophistication and had to sound unique, have no negative associations. They tested over 2,000 ideas before they finally got Warby Parker as the winner. You know, that's an interesting way to put it is, is um, part of originality is buying freedom. And you don't refer to it exactly that way in, in the book, but I find it very interesting because people think, Buying freedom means making money. But reality is buying freedom might be a lot of things. It might be having plan Bs just in case your idea doesn't work. It might be staying at the day job while you while you, you do things simultaneously. So it's it's kind of building up freedom points somehow so that you can you can do this. And I wanna kind of this might be a a tangent, but it's in the book. Um, you talk about championing ideas within an organization and you mentioned uh, Carmen Medina in the Intel working for the CIA. And she couldn't at first champion her idea of sharing data across uh, organizations. And later she was able to do it after, as you put it, she kind of acquired idiosyncrasy points. And maybe describe that a little bit, because I thought that was a really, for me, that was an innovative concept. Yeah, it's been one of the things that's shaped my thinking a lot. So the idea is that we don't tolerate new ideas equally from everyone. And, you know, when some people bring them to the table, especially if they haven't sort of earned our respect first, we're like, who are you? (laughs) What business do you have speaking of? 
uh, it's the people who have been really successful, who have been generous, who have demonstrated a track record of you know changing thinking in a productive direction that are given these idiosyncrasy credits, which are basically licensed to deviate and do things differently. And, you know, in Carmen's case, she's junior at the CIA. She has this, you know, big idea that they need to be sharing information across agencies in the 1990s and suggests um, using the fax machine and then the Internet to do it. And people are like, that's dangerous. You're going to jeopardize national security. It ends up torpedoing her career. But she learns then that she's got to think about risk like a portfolio, um, just like a stock market investment. So and everybody knows if you're going to bet on a risky stock, then you protect yourself by making some really safe investments. And this is exactly what original people do. So what Carmen does is she goes and takes the most conservative job she can find, which is actually about protecting security leaks. Um, and she puts at the very bottom of her priority list, number seven, to see whether the internet could possibly help with that. And she demonstrates that she's able to keep information in the CIA classified. And now she can sort of smuggle this internet idea, which becomes a Wikipedia for intelligence agencies, um, you know, under this guise of this very, very conservative thing. So she now, now she's got a balanced risk portfolio instead of just saying, I'm going to champion the internet and people are going to kick me out of this agency. So it's interesting. It's all, you know, here we are. People think of like creatives or originals as like guys like, Picasso or Steve Jobs or all these people you think of like you can't possibly categorize they're just beyond kind of the the fold of where we can understand what's going on in their heads and yet you're talking in very conservative terms like um, how do they manage their risk portfolio buying freedom buying idiosyncrasy points Um, you know What's and, and and again, let's look at the Warby Parker guys in your original in your your origin story here in this book, which is you didn't invest and yet they turned out to be remarkably creative. Like, what was the dissonance there? Well, you know, I guess for me, it's almost like you thought they were too conservative or not understanding enough of their space. Yeah, I mean, I I, I didn't think they were committed enough. I thought that they were playing it too safe. And I also, yeah, I mean, look, none of them really had a background in this industry. Uh, you know, like Neil had, he had gone and worked for a nonprofit that brought glasses into the developing world. And that was the, literally, that was the entirety of, the, of their experience with, with eyewear. None of them had fashion or retail backgrounds at all. Um, they'd come from consulting and banking. And you just look at them and you say, like, how are these guys going to know enough about the industry to possibly disrupt it? Yeah, and then so so you were wrong, and why were you wrong? Uh, thank you for reminding me. I forgot. Uh, well, I mean, it's chapter one. So no, I, I think I mean I think there are a lot of reasons that I was wrong, but it turns out that you know a lot of the great originals are just like the rest of us, right? They they feel fear and doubt. They procrastinate. They hate taking risks. They have bad ideas, and in in this case, one of the interesting things is you see that some of the most original people in the world, whether it's scientists, artists entrepreneurs, inventors, they don't have the deepest expertise in their fields. They tend to have the broadest experience. And um, I, I love this quote from Carl Weick, who says that creativity results from putting old things in new combinations or new things in old combinations. And you can only do that if you have... Steve Jobs actually said this back in 1982. He said, uh, basically, the creativity comes from not having the same bag of experiences as everyone else. Now, his bag of experiences was illegal in most countries. <laughs> but in, uh, in what way? Uh, well, I mean, I think there were some drugs involved. But uh, I see. <laughs> uh, when it came to you know going to India and you know seeing a different culture, um, thinking differently, that that was he said the seeds were planted by going and not just you know sitting in a garage. Well, and, and you uh, expressed that there was a study, I guess, where fashion designers who had spent significant amount of time in other countries ended up having, um, I guess, the best fashion lines or the or the what 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 was the ranking? Were they the most revenue generated on their fashion lines or? It was uh, when you look at the most original and innovative fashion collections, uh, as ranked by buyers and um, experts and critics within the industry. Um, I, I found this fascinating because I thought it was going to be the people who just spent the most time abroad. But traveling abroad didn't do it. Neither did living abroad. It was working abroad. Hmm. You had to internalize the assumptions in the new culture and actually collaborate with people who are in it. So if you're an American, like going on a trip to Canada, not going to help you a lot. But you know, going and saying, I'm going to take like a, a stint in Eastern Europe or in Latin America, that could be pretty useful. 
And it was it was basically saying, look, I've I've got to make sure that I'm getting access to new perspectives, which is hard to do when you do the same thing every day. Well, you look you look at like musicians, like take Sting for example. He's a great example of where he traveled after the initial success of the Police and then his solo career. He traveled to many other countries to basically assimilate their forms of music into what he was doing, and that became kind of a next like a third stage of his career. So you know you see this in music a lot. You see this in art a lot from from guys who travel or painters who um, dabble in sculpture then suddenly bring that back into their painting and and so on. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, although it, it doesn't have to come from travel, right? It could be about saying, I'm going to learn a different function in my organization that I have no experience with. I'm going to pick up a new hobby that you know gives me access to a different language or a different way of thinking. And yeah, I think we'd all di- probably diversify our experience a little bit more than we do. So it's almost like a key to, let's say I wanted to train myself to be more creative. One key is to immerse myself into some other field other than the one that I've been, let's say, devoting my life to. So if I was always trained to be a mathematician, maybe I learn how to play a musical instrument or something like that. What, what would you actually do? What would you pick? Uh, for me, I mean, I do dabble in a lot of things. So, I mean, I play in te- very intensely lots of games. I write a lot. I read a lot. I'm involved in lots of businesses. And I think that has, for me, come together in a very good way. Like, I've had businesses combining um, my knowledge of technology with my interest in, in writing and art. And uh, so I've been able to do that for myself. I don't know if I were to do something now. Oh, if I were to do something right now, I would go intensely into stand-up comedy. That's like a, a love of mine. And I did my first one about a month ago. How'd it go? It went great. It was fantastic. So I would keep doing that um, if I was to immerse myself into something new. When are you going to make your uh, your stand-up schedule public? Uh, I don't know about that. That I might never do. <laughs> All right. Well, when when you do, I think there's an audience who's ready. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll do that then. But uh, what about you? What are you? So clearly you're on this track of like... You know, Wharton professor, you do you do a lot of consulting, I could see from, from what you write in the book. Uh, you write a lot. What else do you immerse yourself in to bring creativity into your life? You know, I, I, I think I guess I've I've done some of the same things that you have where I've I've just pursued things that I'm curious about and then unexpectedly they turn out to have bridges between them. I mean, I'm always amazed at the people you're talking to. Like, one chapter, you're talking to the Warby Parker guys. The next chapter, you're sitting next to Larry Page at dinner. Like, and, and by the way, then you come to similar conclusions from, from both. Like, so Larry Page uh, was very conservative before going off and starting Google. He stayed as a grad student for a really long time. Yeah, I, I guess part of what I do as an organizational psychologist is, like, I see patterns across very different worlds. And... That's that's part of the fun of it, right? Like I, I was sure that you know a lot of these blue chip entrepreneurs would would be fearless, and I, I was stunned to find that they were all afraid of failing, just like everybody else is. But they had a, a really different way of thinking about failure. They would say, "Look, like I, yeah, I hate the idea of failing, but I am even more afraid of failing to try." And I think what they they understood is something that a lot of people get wrong, which is you know when you think about going out there into the world with with something new or, or original. Um, it's easy to imagine, you know, getting embarrassed, being rejected, looking stupid, and so a lot of people say, oh, "I'm just, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to gr- regret that." But if you look at the research on this, in the long run, the regrets that we act, excuse me, the regrets that we have are the inactions, not the actions. So, but, but let's think about like Larry Page as an example. Initially, you mentioned he wanted to, and it's and it's well known he wanted to sell Google to Yahoo for like a million dollars, and they said no to him. Him and Sergey Brin. Uh, what if he? It seems like not only so. So he was afraid not to, to. He was afraid to not try, but he was also confident that he would keep coming up with ideas. So I think there was a there's this, this quality as well. Yeah, I think there's a big difference between doubting yourself and doubting your ideas. Mm-hmm. And you know, self doubt is paralyzing. Doubting your ideas, that's energizing. It motivates you to keep coming up with new ones, to try to refine and improve the old ones. And I guess what a lot of these originals did is they said, look, like the biggest, you know, you could fail by, you know, starting a business that flops, or you could fail by not starting a business at all. And I don't want to be in that second category. And then what they would do is, you know, when they have these moments that we all have of like, "Ah, can I do this? They would reframe it and they'd say, well, other people believe I can do this. Or, you know, like the this this draft is garbage. Well, the first few drafts are always garbage. I'm just not there yet. And by preventing the, you know, the, the doubting your ideas from leading to this, you know, paralyzing self-doubt, they were able to propel themselves forward. So I'm always trying to, to think, so who's who's listening to this and how can they make use of it? So let's say someone's listening to this. Um, 
They, they doubt their ideas, but they also suspect that, that often they doubt themselves. You're basically suggesting, you know, kind of change the way you doubt yourself, like reframe the problem. Like what are, so you gave some examples, but what, what's some ways if I doubt myself, uh, and that's kind of debilitating in terms of how I uh, come up with ideas, how can I sort of re, you know, change the question a little bit? I, th- I think one thing you can do is you can actually track your own past performance. So everybody has had moments of self-doubt that they overcame and discovered, I'm not as bad at this as I thought, or I was able to improve upon it. And I think sometimes just reviewing that personal history is reassuring. Sometimes people, though, are, are really pessimistic. They said, OK, well, I did that when I was 20, but now I'm 30 with kids or, you know, some they have excuses. They come up with excuses. There's two argue, there's two sides arguing in the head. Yeah. I mean, I guess if that's the case, I would say, you know, don't run away from that pessimism. Embrace it. Um, most originals are, I guess I think of them as skeptical optimists. They believe that, you know, there's an opportunity for them to improve the world around them, but they're not easily, you know, like they don't fall in love right away with their first ideas. And I guess the way that you get there is sometimes it's by imagining the absolute worst case scenario. Uh, so, the, as you know, there's this idea of defensive pessimism that I love. So, um, think about this ver- skeptical optimism versus defensive pessimism. I like yeah. these. Uh, yeah, so we're, we'll just combine a bunch of things that, that clearly don't belong together. <laughs> now, um, so standard optimists. Uh, think about the last time you took a test. About a week beforehand, you picture a perfect performance, and then that energizes you to study, and you do a great job. Defensive pessimists have a very different approach, which is they will about a week beforehand. Imagine themselves not only failing the test, but doing so badly that their teacher takes away points on their previous exams. <laughs> and, you know, that that freaks them out and they start to panic and that motivates them to study really hard. The data show they perform just as well as the optimists. Hmm. Um, but each time, even though they've never failed, they convince themselves that this time is different and I'm really going to be a disaster. There's one way to sabotage the performance of a defensive pessimist, which is you make them happy. Because hmm. in a good mood, they get complacent and they don't study as hard or prepare as much. So there's something about confronting the absolute worst case scenario that leads you to say, if you have some lead time, you know, I've, I've got to work harder at this and I've got to improve. And that can actually kick you into gear. So maybe there's a, there's a time and a place for imagining the worst. So let, let, related to this, what about procrastination, good or bad? It depends. What are you trying to accomplish, productivity let's, or creativity? Let's say I'm writing a book and I've got a deadline. I want to be creative. I think that you want to start working on it really early and give, give yourself time to procrastinate along the way. I see. Give yourself time to procrastinate, and then do you have a do you do planned procrastination? So, for instance, what what for me, what I like to do, and and you kind of allude to this type of idea in the book, is I know when I procrastinate, I come up with a list of things I'm going to do, like I'll read this book instead of working on this project or whatever. So, is there is that a a good technique, or should I leave the procrastination like wide open? I don't know. I think. You know, I, I guess I got interested in this because I'm the opposite of, of, of a procrastinator. I'm a precrastinator, and this, this, believe what does it or that not, mean? this is a real term to describe people who dive into tasks early and finish them ahead of schedule. And you know, like you know that panic you feel when you have a deadline coming up in a few hours and you haven't started writing. Yeah, I feel like, I feel that like months in advance. Okay, the moment I like I have an idea or an assignment, I'm like must be done now. Tremendous sense of urgency and pressure, and. I always thought that made me productive and, you know, it was kind of something I I thought was a good quality. And then I had a student, Jihei, who told me she had her most creative ideas when she was procrastinating. And I was like, that's fascinating. Go and test it. So she went into a few companies. She found out that people who procrastinated sometimes were rated by their bosses as more creative than people who procrastinated like me and always finish things uh, early. And then we went into the lab and we ran some experiments and we showed that if we randomly assigned you to start thinking about ideas, but then play solitaire or minesweeper before you move forward on those ideas, that you were 28% more creative. Hmm. And, you know, minesweeper is cool, but it's not the driver of the effect. So what's going on there? Why do you, you get more creative then? What happens is when you rush into a task, you're stuck with only your first ideas. Those are the most conventional. You're also tending to think in a really structured way. Whereas when you know you're kind of you're doing something else, but the task is active in the back of your mind, you give the idea time to incubate. You do more divergent thinking, so you come up with weirder and wilder ideas, and you're also less likely to just be stuck in these linear patterns. So you make unexpected connections. I wonder also, like you, you specifically mentioned, they would procrastinate with Minecraft, and I wonder if playing a game where you have to constantly be creative, if that kind of juices the creativity in another way. We, like I wonder if you kind of controlled for game playing versus just sitting there. Yeah. Uh, 
We, you know, it's interesting. We did in a variation on this. So first of all, if you play the game first before you start the task, there's no creativity boost. Mm-hmm. You have to be told about the task and then be, you know, kind of processing it unconsciously while you're playing the game in order to get the benefit. In another version of this, we were able to show that when you get people to procrastinate, you know, by doing other things that aren't as active as games, you can still get some creativity benefits. Um, it, it helps to have, you know, your your mind engaged, but it's not necessary to be doing something fun. So, so one of the one of the big things you mentioned is that um, people who have good ideas tend to come up with more ideas than people who have not so good ideas. Right? You know, however you gauge that. So. So and it reminds me there was um an advertising executive who's written a bunch of books about advertising George Lois uh, who said uh, one time he gave his employees a task come up with one oops come up with one idea for this campaign and he came back an hour later nobody had any ideas and then he said okay come up with 10 ideas and he came back an hour later and everybody had 10 ideas so there's something something to that and I I kind of believe ideas themselves are like a muscle and that people should literally practice writing ideas every day no matter what just to exercise that muscle do you think there's do you think there's validity to that I, I think it's brilliant advice because you know, most of us think that these original people in the world the creative geniuses that we admire they're the ones who had a eureka moment and then they obsessed about refining that one bold idea to perfection and then they moved on to the next one once they were finished it just doesn't work that way what distinguishes the great originals from their peers is not the quality of their work on average. It's the quantity. They have more bad ideas. And that's the way that they get to good ideas. Because most of the time when you're generating an idea, you can't judge whether it's any good. You're too close to it. And, and that's like a cognitive bias, right? Like we just smoke our own crack all the time. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Um, may- maybe you do. But... No, I-, I get terrified. If I'm starting a business, I get terrified I'm smoking crack about this idea when everyone else can clearly see it's bad and I just can't see it. And there, there's a part of that that's adaptive, right? Because you know you have to see some potential in your ideas in order to be motivated to pursue them. But what happens to a lot of people is you know, they, they just don't know which ideas are, are any good. And so the more ideas you generate, the more volume you have, that means more variety and a better shot at stumbling on something truly new. How does this relate to like the, the one-hit wonder? So whether it's a musical one-hit wonder or someone like Einstein who had kind of this brief spur of amazing creativity, like lifelong creativity, you know, theory of relativity, all that kind of stuff. And then he wasn't really at that level of creativity ever again for the rest of his life. So Einstein's an interesting case. He published about 250 papers in his career, and, you know, it's, it's only a small so it's handful. it's a quantity thing. Yeah. I mean, you could say, like, you know, he just he had to generate a lot of, you know, decent work in order to revolutionize physics with general and special relativity. But the life cycle of his creativity is interesting because he peaked early. And there's an economist at Chicago, David Galenson, who's been studying, you know, what, why are there some young geniuses... Why are other people old masters who are able to sustain their originality as they age? Einstein, I think his biggest mistake was he was he was theory driven. So what he would do is, you know, he would learn a bunch about physics. He wouldn't know it nor probably as deeply as most of his peers. And he would come at it from really unusual perspectives. Like he said, relativity was a musical thought. And it was his violin training that led him to all these crazy thought experiments that he did. Uh, you know, like imagining himself riding on a beam of light. Like what, what physicist before Einstein thought to imagine that? Hmm. And then, you know, flash of insight, here we are. What, um, w- what that does, though, is it forces him to depend on those early moments when he's just learning about a field in order to see it fresh. And the longer he spends in it, the more he starts to take for granted assumptions that he should have been questioning. Um, to the point, actually, that poor Einstein, uh, he opposed quantum physics, which was the next revolution. And he had a big debate with, uh, I think it was Niels Bohr, where um, he eventually lost because he forgot to incorporate his own theory of relativity in his critique <laughs> of quantum <laughs> physics. Whoops. Anyway, long story short, um, if you're instead of being theory-driven, if you're data-driven or you know, if you're experimental, you don't just have a vision up front, but you follow wherever the story takes you or the question leads you, you're much more likely to discover new things in the world, and it's easier to be creative then. It's like Mark Twain writing Huckleberry Finn at age 50. He didn't know where the story was going to go. right? He didn't begin with the end in, in mind. He just kind of followed the characters on this journey, and that's, I think, the, the key to staying original. Well, it's funny because like, um, I just turned 48, 
and I'm feeling like, okay, now am I getting old? And you gave great examples of people who had uh, uh, some big successes later on. And it wasn't like they had their first success uh, later on, but that they had maybe their greatest successes later on. So Mark Twain was a great example. Um, what, were, what were some other examples? Frank Lloyd Wright, mm-hmm. greatest architectural achievement is falling water. 68 years old when he did it. 68 years old, wow. By the way, procrastinated for almost a year to the point that his client drove out and physically demanded, you will produce a drawing on the spot. And that was when Falling Water was designed. Mm. But, you know, he'd been thinking about it in the back of his mind, clearly. I think that when you, know, when you look at this idea that you know, people fear that they're going to become unoriginal as they age, and it's not that they lose the ability to think creatively. It's that it's exactly what happened to Einstein. They have internalized things that they need to question. And that's, that, this comes back to our idea of, of broadening your experience and your knowledge. That's when you need to step outside of your field in order to see what you should be challenging. Or, or being, you know, I think kind of a key to all of this is being a skeptical every step of the way. So, you know, like the Warby Parker guys were skeptical that eyeglasses needed to cost a certain amount, that they needed to be made a certain way, that they needed to be, that, that, that consumer behavior would be a certain way. But, you know, a lot of people are wrong when they're skeptical. Like, you know, sometimes things are true for a reason and being skeptical of everything while it could be healthy for creativity could also make you like kind of the stupid guy in the corner who's just constantly skeptical yeah there's a there's a great saying from um from bob sutton and jeff pfeffer at stanford they say look this is about wisdom and wisdom is acting on the best information you have while doubting what you know Hmm. and i think you have to hold those two things in tension right that's the skeptical optimism and is it maturity then like how do you balance those two things I don't know. I think... Because you gave young examples and old examples. Like, how do you just get that right balance? Honestly, I'm not sure. I think you have to rely a lot on two groups of people. One is your peers. So it turns out, shockingly, middle managers are the worst judges of whether an original idea is worth pursuing because they're looking for all the reasons to reject it and play it safe. And they tend to get stuck in comparing new ideas to old prototypes of what worked, which doesn't make a lot of sense if you're trying to do something novel. Well, well, it's interesting because that's almost like... so. You, so I thought that discussion in the book was great. Basically, the people at the top can afford to take risks because they have the power. The people at the bottom can afford to take risks because they have no power and nothing to lose. People in the middle can't afford to take risks. So it's almost like, again, you're buying these risk points, but you're buying them at either end. You are. Uh, um, so go, I mean, go to people more senior or you know, further down in the hierarchy. They're much more likely to be open to new ideas. And so how does this relate to the risk mitigation of uh, original thinkers? I guess it is risk mitigation to either get power or to have no power. Like if I, either way, if it's, if I, if I'm limiting what I can lose, um, then I've, I, and middle managers have the most to lose, really. You would think the biggest guys have the most to lose, but they don't because they've already secured that they had, they've bought so many idiosyncrasy points, they can afford it. And the other guys could just leave the job and they don't care. They'll find a new job. Exactly. So, so. I guess to always put yourself, to always think about risk and a risk portfolio when you're coming out with ideas. Yeah, I think that's that's a big step. The other thing that jumps out at me is, and you see this all the time, so one of the curses of being a writer is people always want feedback on their book proposals, right? And oftentimes I'll get a proposal and I'll look at it and say, you know, who, who did you go to for, for comments on it? And the most common answer is I gave it to my best friend and my spouse. Unless your spouse loves you enough to criticize you, those are not your best sources of feedback. What you want is to give it to like your three worst enemies who will tear the idea apart and then ideally help you make it better. So that's interesting because, A, in your acknowledgments, you basically say the process of writing this book was fun because of your spouse. You know, so did you, do you feel like your spouse understood this concept? And Yeah, Allison, she's, she is, she's my best critic in the sense that she believes that I can come up with good ideas, but she's the first one to tell me when an idea is not interesting. Like, what was an example where you were sure, you were almost mad at her for, for critiquing an idea? Oh, I was, you know, there was this, this section that got scrapped from the book where I was, uh, I was fascinated by, let, let me pause for a second, actually, I want to make sure I get this right. I kind of purged it from my memory. It was so painful. Divorce lawyers were called. It was no. It was uh, it was was not a good idea in retrospect. Um, What was it? It was. Give me one second on this. I will figure it out. Um, Oh yeah. Okay. So I wanted to write part of the book about whistleblowing. Uh, I had this really interesting conversation with Malcolm Gladwell, who said. 
Like, what if you know? What if everything we know about whistleblowing is wrong, and it's one mechanism that people have to you know fight conformity and get rid of groupthink? I tried to write this chapter about how the people who blow the whistle the loudest are the biggest cheaters, because you know they they want to clear every other cheater out of the system, right? Like if if you're a major league baseball player, you want to be the only one doping, <laughs> and that way you have a competitive advantage. I tried to write this chapter. There's something to that, like you know the the biggest. Uh, you know, you always see like the the richest people want to have the highest tax rate, you know, and they're no longer paying taxes. They're already rich. They're done. So but they want to have the highest tax rate for everybody else, it, it seems. So I, I think the idea has merit. And there's some uh, Omar L. Docker has some studies actually kind of pointing to this pattern that, you know, cheaters are the ones who punish other cheaters. But I was trying to find good examples of it. And I, I gave a draft to my wife and she read it. And she's like, this is not working. And I was like, but it's such an interesting idea. But the execution didn't cut it. And eventually uh, I realized that she was totally right, as she always is. But, you know, there was you, you kind of take, let's say, a subset of that. I feel your discussion of uh, and you just mentioned it, too, when when, you know, who do you give your ideas to to critique? You don't give them to just a random devil's advocate slash whistleblower. I'm going to just kind of make a parallel there. But you, 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 somebody can't be assigned to be a whistleblower. They have to, it has to internally come from them that I really don't like this idea or I really want to, I really think these people are cheating. I'm not just going to try to find them cheating. I really think they are. And then they have the most internal motivation to come up with the best critique of your ideas and most persuasive and so on. I, I had not seen that connection. I, I, I think it's right on target. I, I, every leader I've ever worked with uses devil's advocates. Right, you assign somebody to argue for the opposite or to represent a minority perspective, and you hope that that means you're gonna, you know, make a better decision. Sad reality is, if you look at the evidence, devil's advocates, when assigned, mostly don't work because you know people are just playing a role, and everyone knows it. And so it's like, I'm gonna pretend to argue for this point of view, and I'll go right back to what I already thought. And the audience is, you know, kind of thinking like, yeah, no need to take that seriously. You know, and it's interesting because it seems like a let's let's again call them a good devil's advocate, one where they're not just a sign, but they're coming at it from some internal opposing vision. And you give a great example with Donna Dubinsky and Apple, where she opposed Steve Jobs on an idea, and you would think Steve Jobs can't tolerate that, but she argues so persuasively, she changes how. Steve Jobs thinks about it. But not only that, one step further, she becomes an amazing success outside of Apple. She starts Palm. She starts Handspring. So all these things happen for, by having that ability to not only have an internal vision, despite like a, a mythological creature like Steve Jobs opposing you, but then being able to come up with the energy and strength to oppose him back. You know, I think that drives you to f- further successes. It, I think it can. And, you know, but you have to have those idiosyncrasy points, though. You do. And I think the way you earn them in this case, this is kind of like the nexus of originalism give and take. So yeah, one, one of the things that was really um, kind of frustrating about the reaction to give and take was, you know, like people I wrote about how, you know, givers are more likely to finish last, but they also are more likely to finish first. And it got sort of stereotyped as like the nice guys finish first book. And uh, let's not forget about the last, right? You can be a pushover and a doormat. That's why you wrote Choose Yourself. Right. But also, givers are not necessarily nice people. And there's this, you know, the separate axis of agreeableness, disagreeableness, where, you know, a lot of people think agreeable people are friendly, polite, welcoming, nice, disagreeable people, more critical, skeptical, and challenging. And most of us assume that agreeable people are givers and disagreeable people are takers. But there's no, no correspondence between those traits. Because agreeableness, disagreeableness is your outer veneer. Is it pleasant to interact with you? Whereas giving and taking are your inner motives. What are your intentions toward others? So if you draw the two by two, agreeable, disagreeable, giver, taker, agreeable givers are easy to spot, right? They say yes to everything. Disagreeable takers, you know those people right away, but you probably call them by a different name. Um, the other two combinations are the overlooked ones, the agreeable takers, the fakers, those the, the, the deadly people. Disagreeable givers, most undervalued people in our lives. Those, that's what Donna Dubinsky, I think, was. They're people who, are on the surface, are rough and tough, but underneath they have other people's best interests at heart. And they're the ones who are most committed to speaking up, to dissenting, to challenging the status quo. And I think we need to do a much better job appreciating that as opposed to, you know, kind of writing them off and saying, like, kind of prickly, must be selfish. But she, she couldn't be so disagreeable that she hadn't previously built up those idiosyncrasy points. Like, you still have to do that somehow by yeah. being conservative and building and earning people's trust and so on. That's and right. I think if you're always disagreeable, if you're always the skeptic and always pointing the finger at everything, you, you, no one's going to listen to you. Yeah, I think you know, Donna's track record was one. Uh, I, I had a Google uh, programmer uh, 
relay a quote at some point who said, you know, a, a disagreeable giver is somebody with a bad user interface, but a great operating system, hmm. if that helps you. And, you know, Don, Donna actually had a good user interface and a good operating system in the sense that she like she showed that she was totally committed to Apple's success. So she was working night and day. She was incredibly conscientious and on top of everything. She was constantly over-delivering. And so when she did bring a suggestion to the table, it's like she's not whining or complaining. She is somebody who wants to make us better. So again, so so it's interesting. So it's being, a, a, in this case, a disagreeable giver plus someone willing to put in the time and effort to have a vision and build these idiosyncrasy points and protect her risk. But that propelled her to success not only within Apple, but within, you know, coming up with Palm and Handspring, Handspring and so on. So it's 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 almost this combination of all these things that, you know, really propelled her. I think so. And, you know, I think that's that's often what it takes to be able to really bring an original idea forward. Um, I, I thought also incredibly interesting that the, the, you know, her challenging of Steve Jobs, like you said, I didn't expect him to be receptive to that. But the Mac team in the 80s had an award for the person who most successfully challenged Jobs. And every year, the person who won that award was promoted, showing that, you know, although he was sometimes difficult, he he actually really valued people pushing him. Sure. Well, look at, you know, everybody says, right or wrong, I don't know, because I don't, I've never met Steve Jobs when he was alive. I don't know, you know, really what the details are. But you look at um, the teams he led, like Tim Cook, who he has been around Apple for, I don't know, 20 years now or all close to that. Uh, Johnny Ive, you know, at Apple, John Lasseter at, at, and Etta Catmull at Pixar. These are people who are like billionaires or 100 millionaires. And Steve Jobs kept them working like day and night. They, he had to be doing something right at a personal level. Everyone says, oh, he had no personal skills. He, he must have had some personal skills. And he was a creative genius. Yeah, you know, I think in some ways Steve Jobs has become a Rorschach test, mm-hmm. right? And whatever like whatever people say about him, it reflects more about their own values than mm-hmm. it does about who he was. But yeah, I think, you know, he he had a singular vision. And from speaking with people who worked closely with him, it was pretty clear that if you were on board with that vision, then you got along reasonably well with him. Um, it's when you know he he couldn't see how you were making technology better or more user friendly, or you were going to make a design elegant. That it was kind of like get out of his way. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of evaluating whether an idea is good, you you brought up a, a great example with the Segway. Like some really smart people, like some of the smartest investors in the world, and this should forgive you on Warby Parker, by the way. But you have like. Jeff Bezos of Amazon, John Doerr of the the best VC firm in the world, Kleiner Perkins. Like all these people said the Segway. Steve Jobs said the Segway is this brilliant invention. Of course, it didn't really work out that way. And some people, um, Randy Commissar, you brought up. Uh, other people said, no, the Segways. You're not thinking about it right. So, uh, what, you know, what what was the difference between the people there? Well, I think the Segway was a great invention. I just don't think it was a great business. Mm-hmm. And one so of the, maybe they appreciated the idea. They were ideas driven people. Well, they're all. I mean, Jeff Bezos is a business guy too. Yeah. No, I, I think it's easiest easiest to analyze where Steve Jobs went wrong on that. So he wanted to invest sixty three million dollars in the Segway. He then offered his own time for free to help make it successful. He really saw potential in it. He said at some point he thought it might be as big as the personal computer mm-hmm. in terms of how it would revolutionize transportation. Maybe it has for mall cops, but rest of us don't know. <laughs> so what? If you look at Steve Jobs' investing style, um, he was very intuitive. Right, He went on gut decisions. And when you track the evidence on that, that works great if you are experienced in that domain. Because intuition is just pattern recognition. It's you know having some degree of your non-conscious processing pick up, oh, well, I see a bunch of these signals that I've seen before, and this means I should probably you know, either do the same thing that I did that succeeded or avoid my choice that failed last time. If you're in a new domain, your gut feeling is based on irrelevant information. It's based on patterns that you detected somewhere else that don't have any bearing on the current situation. And yet, tra- Segway was in the transportation space. We all have kind of experience with transportation. We ride cars every day, we do, we, or subways or whatever. Not so, the right kind of not, experience. Right. Okay, so, but you don't, you don't think Steve Jobs goes in there and says, okay, well, here's how I get to work. This solves a problem for me, or here's how I move around. I think he does, but he he's way too wealthy at that point to mm. you know to really understand what people might pay for this, you know, in addition to a car or to get them to substitute for a car. 
I think you know it's it's a big problem for people to assume that just because they've used a product, they're going to understand how to build it and make it successful. Um, you know, I like you own a car. Like, does that make you an engine expert? Well, no. okay. Steve Jobs is an example again. He saw over a period of years, just as a consumer, problems he had with the phone, and that's how he comes up with the iPhone. I think, though, he spent a lot more time on the inside, right? Trying to build these phones, trying to test them, figuring out what worked and what didn't. And he knew he knew the digital world. That was where his experience was built up and where his intuition was so accurate most of the time. But you go over to transportation, it's a whole new set of questions. And I don't think he had spent enough time trying to understand the ins and outs of what would it take to market this idea successfully? Um, you know, if you really are going to try to make the segue to the car, what the car was to the horse and buggy, that is a big undertaking. And how are you going to solve all the regulatory problems to get people to you know, be allowed to ride this on the sidewalk? How are you going to make it cheap enough but still meet your de- design criteria? These are a lot of questions that didn't get answered. So this reminds me again of the fashion designers. It's not just a matter of uh, living abroad. You have to actually immerse yourself in the other domain. So we've all used cars, but it's like, I don't know how a car works. I haven't immersed myself in that domain. So you kind of still have to immerse yourself to sort of help evaluate the ideas. I think that's a that's a very nice way to put it. And yeah, I see this in my field all the time too, right? Like people think that owning a brain makes them an expert on human behavior and psychology. I'm like, yeah, you obey the laws of gravity. Are you a physicist now? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's interesting because I guess uh, in every area, that's why people like the Food Channel, right? So we all eat food. <laughs> so we can say, yeah, this looks good. Like this guy looks like a good chef, but we don't really know like all the kind of uh, peculiarities of being a great chef. So I wanted to actually go over towards the end or even on the last chapter, you kind of basically just sort of list out or summarize what it takes to be, you know, creative, what you should do. So so what are basically I'm listening to this and I want to start being more creative, whether it's my job or I want to start a business or I want to be an artist. Like what are the first things I should start focusing on? Well, I think if you know if you want to generate more creative ideas, one of the places to begin is to get more comfortable questioning the default assumptions you make about the world. So, so what's, what are some things I can question right now? Well, I mean, let, let's take an example of you know you're you're sitting in your in your place and you realize that you're looking for some extra income, and you've looked at your couch and your spare bedroom a thousand times before. But suddenly this time you say, well, why can't I rent that out and create Airbnb? Right. Uh, I think that's the kind of thinking that we see among people who do really original things in the world is to say, instead of what is this, they ask themselves, what could this be? I think I think also, you know, there are so many things that are default. Again, just as exercise, for instance, we're in the middle of a presidential election. Well, do we need a president? Or is it really wow. important that each person votes? Or sh- Yeah, should we have a democracy? Right, or should we have a democracy? Should Or should we have an electoral system? So all these things that should are the Should we have defaults. two parties? Right? Yeah. The, the more of those kinds of questions, I think you're absolutely right about exercise, right? This is like a muscle. If you get used to questioning systems that you've always taken for granted, which is easy to do when you look at how the rest of the world works in the case of politics, then you're in the habit of thinking that way about everything you see. Yeah. So, okay, so que- question of default. Uh I love the triple the number of ideas you generate. So when we talked about that, immerse yourself in a new domain, procrastinate strategically. I think, uh, again, a lot of people say, or I, someone asked me this recently, how can I focus more? How important is focus? Uh, It's hard to, it's hard to accomplish anything or execute on your ideas if you're not focused. But I think there's a time and a place for it. Mm-hmm. So if you focus too much too early, you end up narrow and you don't get this variety of ideas that we talked about being so important for originality. I think that you know, for anyone who's trying to learn how to focus more, the easiest thing to do is you know, to try to build routines that allow you to get into flow. But, but let me ask you this. Um, okay, well, I want to ask you about that first because you used that magic word that everyone's obsessed with, flow. So how, what is a routine that gets me into flow? So... Usually, for me, it starts with um, with the things that I don't have to force myself to do. That, you know, like I look, I I really enjoy writing, and most of the time when I sit down to write, you know, like the I, I just start typing, and mm-hmm. the biggest barrier to my progress is how fast I can press the keys. And knowing that, I will take other tasks that I you know have a hard time focusing on, and I will put them right after some of these you know really immersive tasks to try to carry over some of the energy and focus. Like what? So as uh, as an example, like I really don't enjoy like data entry kinds of tasks. So I do a lot of data analysis in my job, 
And, you know, oftentimes, like, you have a bunch of variables that need to be reconstructed and analyzed differently. And I'm like, ah, here we go again. But when I do them right after writing, um, I feel like I have some momentum. So, you know, it's funny that you say you just sit down and you're able to write because a lot of your writing is very um, uh, research-driven. So you have to have the story in advance. You have to have kind of done the field work. You had to be sitting next to Larry Page at dinner at one point to write that, you know, chapter with him. So so what if you don't have that data in front of you? Can you What do you write about? I think you have to go out and find it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, Malcolm Gladwell is such a, a fascinating example of this. He spends a couple days a year in the New York Public Library just wandering around, picking out books and seeing what interests him. And what I think is so powerful about that is it's one of the only places that you can accidentally discover things that you want to learn more about. Because if you do a Google search, guess what? You already determined what you're looking for. That's really interesting. I was wondering that actually while reading the book because you have so many like obscure examples. Like, where are you getting? How? I mean, I figured you just must read a lot about a lot of different subjects, but... Where? How did you determine what? You know, how did you find some of your stories? So normally, what happens is, like, I spend a lot of my time reading, you know, like social science research. Mm-hmm. I, I find it incredibly interesting. It's it's part of what I try to bring to the table, right? It's as somebody who who says, look, like, when we when we're going to make big decisions, we should look at what the best evidence says and learn from lots of people ex- people's experiences as opposed to just one person's. And so a lot of times, like, when a study is in a certain context, like, you know, you're, you're reading a study of, um, of entrepreneurs, then you start thinking about, well, who are the entrepreneurs that would best bring this to life? Um, when I was writing the, the chapter on idea selection, I knew I wanted to write about a false positive and a false negative. And I remember, like, sitting at my kitchen table and finding out that this crazy product that was supposed to change the world was, like, a little personalized scooter. And it's always stuck in my mind as, like, a, you know, pretty egregious false positive. On the flip side, at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm kind of back in that, that moment of, it was like the year 2000, I think. I'm back there, and what was I doing at that moment? I was like deeply depressed that Seinfeld was no longer on the air. And so it's like, oh, wait a minute, Seinfeld was the opposite. It was a show that almost everybody passed on and turned out to be a, a huge hit. Oh, and that's what I wanted to ask you about, because you, you bring that up in the chapter with a segue. Those guys weren't domain experts, the ones who either passed or approved of Seinfeld. How did they, was it just a luck thing, the guy who approved it? Now, you gave reasons, but again, he didn't have domain expertise in specifically what Jerry Seinfeld was trying to do. He had domain expertise in television, but so did all the people who rejected it. Yeah, I think the difference, so Rick Ludwin was the guy who saved Seinfeld from the cutting room floor. Uh, The pilot was, was considered bad enough that it was labeled not just weak, but a weak week in one of the reports. And uh, the the focus group summary said no segment of the audience was eager to watch it again, and that was kind of That's the hilarious. end of Seinfeld, right? <laughs> Which, in retrospect, uh, not quite accurate. Uh, so Rick Ledwin comes along. He doesn't even work in sitcoms. He comes from the variety and specials department, and he watches this thing, and it makes him laugh. And he says, you know, you, it doesn't really matter that the plot goes nowhere, and it's a show about nothing, and there are all these unresolved themes. Um, people watch a sitcom because it's funny. And I think part of the reason that he's able to see that is he's worked on lots of different formats. He's not locked into this prototype of here's how you make a successful comedy show. So he's done Saturday Night Live sketches. He's done specials with Bob Hope. And he's much more open to different possibilities because he has that variety of experience. And then, interestingly, the writing team, almost none of them had any experience in sitcoms either. And I think that's part of what freed them up to break the mold. So it's almost like they created a new genre of sitcom. And the guy who who was basically an expert at developing new genres, like a Bob Hope special is unlike any other kind of special. So the guy who was immersed in that was able to sort of see the possibility here. He is. And you know, years later, Rick Ledwin is uh, looking at this other show that they're on the fence about, and he makes a passionate case and helps to save The Office. Ah, uh, The Office, right. I like how you, did, you didn't do the reveal so fast there. Like uh, You kind of left us wondering what show it was. But because um, you do that throughout, like basically you start every chapter of the book that way. But um, uh, OK, then the next one here is seek more feedback from peers, but not specifically peers, but essentially and not quite devil's advocates, but almost like people who hate you. <laughs> like your accountability partners should be people who like not necessarily hate you, but they're going to be disagreeable in some way. Yeah, I think most of us make the mistake of going to those agreeable peers and colleagues and bosses, for that matter, too, because we expect them to be supportive. And they are supportive in that conversation. But what's great about disagreeable people is they will tear our ideas apart to try to make them better. And then, unlike agreeable people, they're not afraid to rock the boat. So if they get excited about your idea, they will run through walls to try to to, to advocate for it. 
And there's even some evidence that highly disagreeable people experience more joy when they're in an argument than when they're getting along with someone. And so like those are the people you want on your side sometimes. But let's say you're not disagreeable and these these disagreeable people are trashing your idea and you feel like they're wrong, but you're also feeling in pain. I mean, you discuss managing emotions. Like, how do I navigate that? Like, when are they right? When do I fight them? How do I manage? My, how do I not be like, oh, I'm really I really suck then at this? Like, how do you how do you manage emotions to to again? It's a balance. I think the first thing you do is you ask them, what would it take to convince you? What evidence would you need to see? What piece of information would change your mind? And then, you know, you, you actually get some reasonable answers on that. And then your challenge is to go and figure out, okay, can I get that? You what know, what if it's something um, subjective like you're a painter? And let's say you think you're a great painter and, and other people have in the past, so you have a track record. Um, but now you painted something and your critics say, this is crap or whatever. Uh, how do you, how do you they, they might be right and they might be wrong. It's subjective. So how do you know there? I don't know. I just study this stuff. <laughs> I mean, honestly, no, you do more than say this stuff. I mean, you you are a good writer. You're you're a oh, creative. Thank you. No, I, <laughs> I I feel like this is this is really hard. There's a fine line between you know, gritty persistence and escalation of commitment to a losing course of action. Um, there's a there's a book by Duncan Watts that speaks to this. It's called Everything Is Obvious uh, Once You Know the Answer. And one of the things he writes about is uh, these these domains that are highly subjective, where you have to use taste to judge what's great. And he, he goes through art critics and he says, what makes the Mona Lisa so great? And the only answer that he can marshal is it's more like the Mona Lisa than any other painting is. <laughs> Which, you know, when you sit down and think about it, right, like there are no objective criteria that make this inherently superior to any other painting. And in fact, for its first few hundred years, it wasn't a standout. Uh, it was only after it got stolen and lost that, you know, it sort of it took off. So what's interesting there is a story was given to it. So it, not, it was not just a painting. It was a painting with a story. It has a story. We know, you know, we consider da Vinci, you know, a great. And, you know, the other, the other thing that Duncan does is he runs these experiments with music markets. So he takes a series of songs that nobody's ever heard. And he, he creates different worlds where people get exposed to all of these songs, but he staggers when they're shared. And he finds that you have to hit a certain quality bar for your song to take off. But once you do that, there are like a couple dozen Justin Biebers in each world who never go anywhere. Because uh, there are these network effects and the songs that have early success get played more. Then repetition makes them more familiar and people start to like them. Their friends know them. They start to share them. And his point is that, you know, like a lot of this is subjective. When somebody tells you to, to go back to your painting example, when somebody tells you your art is crap, it may mean that it is crap. It may mean that they're the wrong audience. It may mean that they haven't been exposed the 10 to 20 times that it often takes to get something truly new. And we just don't know. You know, you know, and this is related um, to your discussion of pioneers versus settlers. So you look at like a classic example is both the search engine space and the social media space. So... Facebook wasn't the first social network. And you got to go back to, I don't know, there was Tripod, there was GeoCities. Friendster, was MySpace. Friendster, yeah, MySpace. So let's say it was the fifth social network. They were clearly a settler in an already occupied space, but they won. And you point out that, in fact, that's not uncommon, that, in fact, the first mover often um, doesn't win, even though it's it's almost like common in MBA class to be a first mover is good. And, you know, you have an example. Amazon was a sort of a first mover in bookstores, first or second mover in online bookstores, and they won. But Google and Facebook were fifth or sixth. So, again, what's where's the balance there? Well, I don't want to say you should never try to be the first mover. What I want to discourage people from doing is rushing in order to be the first mover. Because if you look at the data... That's great advice. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's simple, right? But I, I encounter so many entrepreneurs who will say, you know, like, I got to get this idea out because I'm afraid somebody's going to beat me to the finish line. Like, no, get the idea right first. And if you track the evidence, first movers on average are less likely to succeed in most domains. Um, it, my favorite study looks at, uh, you know, 50 different product categories who introduced the, the market and who, you know, that's a pioneer and then the settler who came in later. And the... Uh, the settlers have only an 8% uh, failure rate, whereas the pioneers have a 47% failure rate. That's amazing. I mean, and look, the computer industry is a great example of that. Like, Steve Jobs in every industry is a great example of that. He wasn't the first guy who made animated movies. He wasn't the first guy who made... Um, a smartphone? Yeah, a smartphone or a, or a Walkman type of phone or you know device or a computer. Yeah, and yet... 
he did learn. From, he wasn't the first guy who made Windows, so you know he did learn from everybody who came beforehand, and then and then built on it. I think I think that's an important thing. Like that's why genre fiction is successful. Like like you know a ro- the latest romance wasn't the first romance, but it might sell you know ten million copies or whatever. Yeah, it's it's just it's so much easier to improve on somebody else's idea where there's an existing market than to create the market. And I guess the you know the punchline for me on this is that to be original, you don't have to be first. You just have to be different and better. Well, being different and better, I think that in one line summarizes being original. <laughs> but I highly recommend you have so many great stories and studies, and it was so interesting, your your book, Originals. I highly recommend everyone read it. Uh, I don't know. what Are you working on a next book now? What's I'm so excited. I loved Give and Take. I loved Originals. What's book number three? Thank you. I, I really appreciate the enthusiasm, and I'm always floored by how how carefully you read. Like you, you have these examples, tip of mind. Like you know them as well as I do, which is, which is scary because well, I, I actually wrote the book. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love this topic though, and I feel like this podcast is sort of about creativity because I think so much about it, like what it takes, and it's such a hard subject. And you really tackled it from both a story driven way and a scientific way, and your own personal experiences. Just thought it was great how it was done. So well, thank you. I um no to. to to answer your question, I, I don't know what's next at this moment. I'll, I'll tell you something I'm, I'm puzzling about right now, though, is one of the, the most important things that I see among the great originals that I've had a chance to interact with is they're willing to be wrong. And they change their minds and they update their beliefs a lot. And I think we know a lot about how egos get in the way of that. What we don't understand yet is how to teach people to be comfortable with being wrong. Yeah, interesting. Well, thanks again, uh, Adam Grant, author of Originals, and uh, hope to have you on again. Thank you, James. Thanks. Great. They were sending me the uh, time. Hey, get out of here. I didn't have a Signal. clock, so I didn't know what. Um... Oh, I didn't even... For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. <laughs>